Welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast with me, Kaylee Boisvert. I specialize in helping people to achieve their financial goals. I have a love for all things numbers, and I am passionate about financial literacy. My goal is to spark healthy and positive conversations around wealth and investment and create a world where nobody is limited by their financial situation. But wealth is just one piece in the equation of living our best lives. So join me as we explore both wealth and wellness topics. From your net worth to your self-worth, get ready to take confident action. Hello, and welcome to the Wealth and Wellness Podcast with me, Kaylee Boisvert. Today's topic is such an important one, so I'm really glad you're tuning in. Um, When I sit down with clients or people I'm meeting for the first time, an important question I ask is, do you have a will in place? And if so, is it up to date? Um, And a common scenario or answer I receive back is no. So I first just want to premise that with, um, there's no shame or guilt in that. I want to give that example just as a reminder to people or, or hopefully maybe normalizing it if you find yourself in that position and these aren't documents that you have in place yet or you haven't made updates to them recently, then this is a great episode to be tuning in for because it's my hope that maybe from this episode um, you're inspired to take some confident action and get these um, do- and very important documents in place. So today's guest is Danica Desette Preville. She's an associate in Gowling WLG's Calgary office. She's the member of the firm's private client service team, providing legal advice on all aspects of estate planning, estate administration, including litigation. Danica drafts wills, enduring power of attorney, and personal directives for clients. And she's also the instructor of Law 533, which is the wills and estates course at the Faculty of Law of the University of Calgary. So she is the go-to guru for wills and estate planning, and she's always been so helpful for me when any questions that I have. So thank you so much for being here today, Danica. Um, to get started, let's just talk about what are those three main documents for estate planning that people should be considering or what do people need? Thanks, Gailey, and thanks for having me on the podcast. What a great initiative and obviously a great topic. I'd like to start by just caveating, as most lawyers do, that this is all for information purposes and it's not to be construed as legal advice. And so I'll do my best to be helpful with all the information I convey. But if any of your listeners have any specific questions, get them to contact a lawyer to discuss their needs. So going back to the three main documents, I'm glad you bring that up because most people think of estate planning as drafting a will. And the will is really, really important. But at my firm, I will often tell new clients, I won't draft your will unless we draft other documents that go with them. And the reason being is that estate planning really is planning your estate, which doesn't mean that it gets triggered when you pass away, but actually starts when you start to have capacity issues. So you look at the spectrum from waning capacity to maybe complete incapacity. Alzheimer's is a really good example of this progression of a disease and then eventually death. So when I'm speaking to my clients about estate documents, we speak about three main documents and I'm going to list them here, but I think it's important to note that I practice in Calgary, Alberta. So these documents are what they're called in Alberta, 
but it might not mean the same thing in different provinces. And so if we have listeners listening in from British Columbia or Ontario, the concepts are the same, but the names of the documents might change province to province. We have the will, obviously, which is the document that you need when you pass away, and it deals with all of your assets. So what you own, who does it go to, who's a beneficiary of the estate, who is named as the executor or personal representative, and other things that it can look at, such as guardianship of minor children or specific instructions with regards to specific assets. You want to leave your grandmother's china to a specific niece, for example. But even before you die, the two really important documents that make up the trifecta of estate planning are what we call the enduring power of attorney and the personal directive. The personal directive used to be called a living will, and a lot of people are more familiar with that name for a document. It's the document you need when you face incapacity and someone needs to make decisions for you on emergency medical care. Do you get that blood transfusion or don't you? Who authorizes it? Um, everything from this type of emergency situation to maybe you've suffered a stroke and you have to be put into a long-term transition facility. Who decides where you go? Who decides what kind of treatment you get long-term? Those are all the questions that the personal directive is intended to address. And so when you think about it, someone can become incapacitated young from a car crash or a sudden medical issue, as well as maybe from a long-term disease. And so it isn't just for quote unquote old people, it's a really important document. And oftentimes even young people like us, I'll call us young, decide that, um, you know, we're invincible, but we're not. Anything can happen to us at any time and we may not have had a chance to talk about what our wishes are with someone. So this document's really important for that perspective. The third document is called the Enduring Power of Attorney. Many people might be familiar with the power of attorney. For example, you sign over access of your personal bank account to your mother because you're going on a really long trip and you want her to be able to pay bills for you. So the difference between a discrete power of attorney for a bank account and maybe an enduring power of attorney is that it's almost like an umbrella document that can be used to access all of your financial assets while you're incapacitated or not. You can trigger it right away if you want to. The idea being here that if something happens to you and you can no longer go to the bank or you can no longer authorize mortgage payments on your house and they come out of your personal bank account, that you have someone in place to do that for you that's already been named that can go to the bank and make sure these payments continue so that, for example, the bank doesn't foreclose on your house. So if we go back to the three main documents, it would be the will when you've passed away and then the enduring power of attorney and the personal directive if you're still alive, but possibly incapacitated. Okay, perfect. So that's, that gives us a good overview of each. And like you said, it's, it's really important probably for people to consider all three of those when they're looking at planning, um, because the other two, again, are very important for those, the living situations if something happens. Um, so that's great and a good overview of each. So a reminder, a reminder to everyone, when you are looking to get these documents done, make sure that you're talking about all them. Um, can we chat a little bit about then what happens if someone passes away without having a will? Of course. This is one of the most common questions I get because oftentimes clients will say, well, 
I've got a wife and I want everything to go to her. So why do I even need a will, for example? And they're not wrong. I think one thing to consider is it depends a lot on the province that you live in because we have in our legislation what is called intestacy provisions. When you die without a will, you're, die, you're deemed to have died intestate. So the legislation will set out who is entitled to your estate. It's very, very simple. When you only have a spouse, it usually goes all to the spouse. However, there can be cases, and we're living this now with blended families. So you could have a spouse and you could have children from a prior relationship. At that point, the estate might be split between the spouse and these other children. Is that really what you want? Does that reflect your wishes? And the other thing to consider is that the legislation doesn't account for maybe blended families where there hasn't been a formal adoption. So under intestacy, stepchildren don't take in an estate. So if you've had these children in your life, you know, since they were young, but you never took steps to adopt them because maybe the biological mother or father was still very involved, they're not entitled to a share of your estate under these provisions. And so the only way to cut them in is to make a will. I think the other reason it's really, really important is you get to make it easier on the person left behind. When you have a will, it's very clear who's going to be in charge of your estate because you name your executor. If you don't have a will, then they have, the people left behind have to decide who's going to act, who has priority to act according to legislation, and then they have to go to court and get appointed before they can even do anything. So it can really, really delay access to funds, pay gifts to beneficiaries, maybe payments of debts. So from the point of view of expediting things from the grave, it's just so much nicer on people left behind. Yeah. Yeah, that's important to remember. It is about, yeah, just making it easier because obviously people left behind are going to be going through grief and, and all that entire process. So if there's any way we can just make it easier so it is more clear on what your intentions were, then they can help just administer that versus having to kind of answer some of those unknown questions. Um, can we talk a little bit then about what makes a will valid? Um, can someone write their own will and maybe even touch on a little bit of will kits, so products out there where people can do their own um, through a software program? Because, and I've said it before, estate law is by jurisdiction, which means it's provincial. The legislation is also provincial. And so what I'm going to tell you applies to Alberta. Um, there are differences between the provinces. One of the things that we have that's very unique in Alberta is that we have two ways of making a will valid. One of them is by the formal process of typing it out, printing it out, um, and then signing it in front of two witnesses. The other is what's called a holograph will. And that is valid as long as the person making the will or the testator drafts it entirely in their own handwriting and then signs it with their regular signature. This isn't the situation, for example, in British Columbia, where I understand holograph wills can't be done. It always has to be a formal will. Now, there are some pros and cons with both. The holograph will is obviously faster, cheaper, you dictate the process, um, but there can be some drawbacks. For example, one of the things that the courts are always looking to in order to validate a document as a will is clear testamentary intention. 
did you have the intention to make this your will? Did it capture all of your assets? Did you clearly enunciate who your executor is? So we hear sometimes stories about people writing a will on a napkin and it's valid or it's not valid. And it's because the testamentary intention has to be clear and be shown. And a lot of people doing their own wills sometimes forget that part. They might just say everything to my dad. And we don't know whether that's a will or not, especially if it becomes contested. The advantage to a formal will is you're often doing it under the guidance of a lawyer, which can guide you to make sure that it is a valid will, but obviously that costs money. So you're kind of weighing the pros and cons and trying to figure out where that middle ground is and what suits you and your needs and your obligations and maybe your assets. So the question I get a lot, just like you did from you is, well, what about will kits? And the answer I have there is not every client needs the Rolls Royce. Not every client needs a lawyer. And clearly there's instances where complex family situations, maybe some assets, real property, a lawyer is really called for. Sometimes a, or a holograph or a will kit might be suitable. But if we go back to what makes either a holograph will or a formal will valid, one thing I've seen a lot with will kits is that clients will print out the blank document and then they'll hand write in all the blanks. Now you're in a situation where you have half a formal will and half a holograph will and sometimes you're going to have to prove to the court, go through the process of a court battle to demonstrate that those handwritten portions are actually in the testator's handwriting and should be valid and incorporated. So Yes, will kits can work sometimes, but it really depends on the execution. Okay, that's a good tip because if people are doing it to save money and then it turns out costing them more having to go to get that proven, like you said, then it really didn't save much in the end or probably might have been better to seek guidance. So that's a good point to just point out. Um, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to estate planning documents? That's a loaded question. <laughs> I would say that there's three top issues I see a lot. The first one is not disclosing to your lawyer all of your assets or liabilities. By that, I mean, clients will often come in and say, I have a corporation, I have a family, everybody gets along, things are going to be simple. I have life insurance, but don't worry about it. Um, and sort of saying, all I want you to do is draft this this way. Then we find out that the life insurance doesn't have a valid beneficiary. Um, we might find out that they have a business and the business has a shareholder agreement that requires them to sell their shares upon death. And so while I might have received instructions to gift the shares to a son, that's actually not what's allowed to be done under the shareholder agreement. So when I'm asking clients for this information, I'm, I'm not asking it to be nosy. I'm asking it so that I can better understand how to draft their documents so that whatever outcome you want can be respected after your death. So that would be number one is giving full and fair disclosure to your lawyer. The second one is underestimating or improperly considering family dynamics. I practice in estate litigation and on more than one occasion, I've had a client come to me and draft, you know, give me instructions to draft a will. And then that client passes away. And now all of a sudden, 
what the client perceived to be a happy-go-lucky family where all the siblings got along isn't the case, especially when one when a parent might give more to one child than the other without an explanation to me as to why. So I like to have discussions with my clients about the reason behind certain gifts they're making or not making in their wills, um, understanding the relationships between, for example, their siblings or their children, and also speaking about some of the external dynamics. What are the spouses like? Because at the end of the day, if you're the one making your will and you have a certain goal in how you distribute your assets, you want to make sure that I can, to the extent possible, protect your wishes by really stronging, by, by strongly drafting. I can respect your wishes. Wait, let me get this right. By drafting a strongly worded will that can actually make your wishes really clear. So that would be number two. The third one, I think, is actually after everybody's happy, the will has been signed, maybe the power of attorney and the personal directive has all been signed, everybody walks away and it goes and sits in a drawer for 32 years. And the client never takes a look at it again. I've had that happen in situations where they've had children and grandchildren and didn't update their will. So that will from 1972 stands as the last will they had. So periodic and pertinent review of your documents is really important. Okay, perfect. And that kind of leads to the next question I have for you, actually. So that's perfect to transition. So what life events might call for that change and prompt, you know, a need to revisit, update, and how often should we be checking in? When we draft wills for clients, we tell them, pull it out, wherever you're hiding it, pull it out and look at it at least every five years. Five years, we think, is a good barometer for allowing enough time in your life to change. So at least every five years, clients should be pulling it out, reviewing it, looking at it with their spouse if they have a spouse and saying, do we still agree with this? And then if they say, yeah, this is still exactly how our life is and how we want things to go, you check a box off, you put a note to yourself for another five years and you put it back where you took it out of. However, there are certain circumstances where I think should prompt an earlier review these things include obviously separation or divorce, the death of a beneficiary or the birth of possible beneficiaries. So your children, the birth of grandchildren, um, your children turn 18 because all of a sudden you might've put trusts in your will for your children that now you don't need to have anymore. So why tie up that money for them? There's a lot of benefits to updating your will regularly with regards to beneficiaries or assets. So assets, you own shares of a private company and now you're retiring and you've gone from owning shares to having a wealth of cash. Does that change how you want the distribution of your estate to go? Or I'd say the last thing is if you move. Because as we've said, changes to provincial legislation maybe affect differences in distribution. So getting legal advice in the province that you're moving into with regards to your will is really, really helpful. Okay. So that's perfect. So it's sort of the every five years, if we can kind of put it in our calendar, otherwise though, keeping in kind of in tune with those life events and maybe that that would trigger a, a reminder for us then to just check in um, and just see if it's still, you know, as per what, what our sort of, yeah, what our goals are and, and what we'd like to see happen. So that's great, great reminder for people of when that needs to happen. 
Um, the word probate, I think, can be confusing or maybe we don't exactly know what that means. So do you want to let us know a little bit, us listeners, what does probate entail? Of course. I think probate is really, really scary to people. So let me dispel with all your fears, especially in Alberta. Probate is the process of proving a will. What that means in practice is if you, oftentimes when someone passes away, bank accounts might be frozen. You can't sell the real property they owned because land titles won't register a title transfer. So probate becomes required. Probate means that you take the will and you take all the information you have about the deceased, who they were, what their family relationships are, who the beneficiaries of the estate is, and a preliminary statement of assets and liabilities. And you collect it into the required forms that the court wants to review. So the court sets out a process. 95% of the time, we can help a client collect all that information, put it into the right court forms, and it's a simple filing at the court. Once it gets into the court's hands, it eventually gets distributed to a judge who reviews it. And if they agree that they think this is the valid last will, there's no contested claims to the estate, they will issue back an order. The order validates that you are the named executor and here is the will. That order is what we usually call a grant of probate. And so when the banks say, I need a grant of probate before I can release the funds, once you get that court order, you can go to the bank and say, listen, I am the executor and the court said so. So can I please now have access to these funds because I need to pay debts or I need to file a tax return with CRA and pay money. That's the probate process. The thing to consider is, again, different jurisdictions have different probate fees. So in Canada, we do not have estate fees per se. So when someone dies, you're not taxed on the wealth of your assets just because you have assets and you've died. There are obviously capital gains considerations and other types of tax events that happen because it's almost like you sold everything you owned on the day you died. However, what certain jurisdictions are really scared of, and I hear a lot about it from my clients in British Columbia and Ontario, is the probate fees charged by the government or the court. So they might take a look and say, well, you have a million dollar estate, you owe us 2% of it in fees. And that's why oftentimes in other provinces, probate can be a really scary word because it means you might need to sell assets to pay these fees. In Alberta, currently, as of 2020, the maximum you will ever pay the government of Alberta for probate is $525. So probate isn't scary. And it's not very expensive in terms of what you're paying to the court. So to the extent it can give you more peace of mind, to the extent it would help you expedite the administration of the estate, if you're the executor, I always encourage clients just to go for it. And at least you have that court order that guarantees that doors will be open for you. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So us in Alberta, not a big concern. Good to know. And other people, maybe you consider moving to Alberta. Maybe this is some enticing, enticing news. Um, so if someone's looking to have these documents done, like what, how should they get started or where should they start? I think some of the, I think some of the delay is just this intimidation factor of, well, where do I start? Who do I talk to? And there's sometimes just this fear to reach out to lawyers. I think sometimes people have of just like, oh, what, who would I talk to? And is that going to cost me a lot of money? And, and some of those um, 
fears, I think, stop us from taking action. So can you chat a little bit about that process and how people can get started? Not every solution requires a sledgehammer. And I like to use that analogy a lot when we're talking about estate planning. People have different assets. They have different family backgrounds and family dynamics. They have different objectives. Um, some people want tax advice when they're doing their estate planning. Others don't. Others want to keep it very simple for everything to be disputed or discussed after they're gone. And so I think it's important to be very clear on how much help you think you want, how much help you think you need when drafting your estate documents. And then I'd encourage people not to be afraid to contact a couple lawyers, get referrals, ask your friends and call a few of them and get a feeling for how they work. How do they plan with clients? What information do they need? What are the fees associated with it? If you're getting incremental advice, such as corporate and tax advice, how much more will that cost you? How long will it take? And I'm saying that because I think it's really important to establish a good relationship with a lawyer from the get-go. If we're going back to how often should you review your estate documents, if this is a relationship you want to have for years and years as your children are born and your grandchildren are born and you want to be able to continue to go back to this person, getting off on the right foot from the beginning is really important. So don't be afraid to call around and choose the one that you're most comfortable with. From my perspective, if I have a client that approaches me and says, I want to do this and I want to do it with you, what do we do? I will send clients a questionnaire. The questionnaire asks all those important questions I talked about at the beginning, which is what assets do you have? What liabilities do you have? What's your family situation like? Do you have any concerns? Do you have adopted children? Do you have any frozen genetic material we have to be concerned about? All of those big questions about what you look like as a person and where you wanna take your estate plan. Once the client fills out that information, I'll go through it. And we usually then have a discussion. What, what does this mean? Could you consider doing it differently? This might be better in terms of what you're leaving for your children, et cetera, et cetera. Once I have that information in hand and a little bit more clarity on the client's objectives, then I'll do a first draft. And we'll go on from there, making drafts and revising until the client is satisfied that we've met their goals and objectives. So for some clients, the tech savvy ones are the ones that don't like to come to my office we can do all of this process electronically and not actually meet until the execution of the will. Other clients really like to meet in person. Sometimes maybe pre coronavirus, that was easier than now, but you know, zoom calls or telephone calls, you can still meet quote unquote in person. So we do that with some clients who want it. And now the government of Alberta just announced that we can even do the execution of wills remotely for a limited time. So from the perspective of actually having to, or being able to leverage technology, this has been a game changer. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's nice to know because it's so important too in times where we're in a time where so many unknown things are happening. So hopefully that does kind of prompt people to say, um, does, you know, do I need one in place because maybe I didn't have these documents in place? Do I need to make changes? Maybe that's some of the thoughts that are happening right now when we're seeing, you know, what's going on and so many unplanned and um, unexpected scenarios are playing out. And so you just always want to make sure you're covered. Um, and I love the 
the point about just um, really looking for the right fit for you and, and finding that person that's going to be a good fit because you're right. It is, it's a long-term relationship. If you want to kind of check in, make changes and, and probably better off to have the same person rather than having a new person each time and having to tell them your whole scenario again. So I love that advice of um, just looking what's out there and, and seeing who's out there. Um, so this was wonderful. So much information. Hopefully people, I'm sure they've taken notes. And I think this is like important information that everyone needs to know because it, it answers some of those questions I think that come up that, like I said, sort of get us maybe hesitating or, or kind of stalling on the next steps and moving forward. So um, hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. If people want to get in contact with you, Danica, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? They can send me an email directly. My email address is Danica, D-A-N-I-C-A dot or period, D is in doctor, P is in Peter, at gowlingwlg.com. So that's G-O-W-L-I-N-G-W-L-G, all one word, dot com. It's a mouthful. You can always just also search me on the internet and our firm's website will lead you in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, this was so such good information, so relevant. Um, I think a lot of people will find it the same way. So thank you so much, Danica, for being here today. My really appreciate pleasure. it. All right. See you next time. I hope you found value in this episode. And because I'm such a proponent of taking confident action, I want to pose a question to you, the listener. What is one action that you feel inspired to take after listening to today's episode? If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Thank you so much, and I will catch you next time.